Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, because this book is very important. And what I mean by that is it's going to create conversation, not only in our homes, but I hope to God that people will take it to their schools as well and say, hey, look, there's something that you need to learn here. Yeah, and it's very likely to be a topic of many conversations in school boards uh, across the country. <laughs> Are you physically and mentally prepared for that? <laughs> I think so. I've got my battle armor in the other side of the room, and I'm ready to put it on uh, at a moment's notice. Should we should we start off by, by defining what queer behavior is? Because we live in this age where everybody seems to have their own definition. Sure, yeah. I mean, queer is actually one of the oldest words attached to same-sex sexual behavior in humans, it goes back centuries. It's actually a much older word than homosexuality. But as far as, you know, the animal world is concerned, I was just considering queer behavior or queer identities as something that is outside of this sort of Noah's Ark conception we have around the ways that animals come together, that it's one male and one female. Um, and so we have, you know, a lot of species that really complicate our notions of strict sexual binaries or that strict, like, coming together only for procreation image that we have. A couple of months ago, I mean, you may have read this story as well. Here in North Carolina, a, a family gave up their dog because they accused it of being gay. So they, they, they gave it away. And it's like, you've got to be kidding me. This is, this is the new millennium. We shouldn't be even thinking like this. Yeah, I saw that, and I saw it was adopted by a um, by a gay couple. Yes, so, isn't that a beautiful story? Of, you know, that's often a human story, right? You have a found family if you're uh, cast out of your family of origin out of prejudice, and then you you find your your new family where you can find it, and it and it held true for this dog. How how much research went into this? Because I'm such an animal speak lover, and what I mean by that is, is I believe that animals speak to us, and we learn from the animals. So I'm very close to animals. Yeah, it was um, the difficulty was not finding the research. It was paring it down. It's been a huge couple of decades as far as biology opening our eyes to same-sex sexual behavior in animals. Uh, Nature, with the foremost scientific journal, uh, did a study of studies that counted up to 1,500 different animal species with validated and confirmed same-sex sexual behaviors. So when I was writing Queer Ducks, it was really figuring out which ones do I focus on so that to keep the story in view so we don't get lost in this flood of just here's another species, here's another species. So I, I had each chapter tackle a question. So like, what is, is there ever, you know, straight up homosexual animals that never have heterosexual sex? Or, you know, what is the, what are the advantages? Like what are the evolutionary explanations for why same-sex sexual behavior might occur in animals? I, I love the layout of the book. I mean, it, I just there's there's graphic art in it as well. But but the th- it's almost like a I, I, when when I was a kid, we had a think and do book. You give us an opportunity to really you know to read several different layers and textures of of the story. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I wanted to keep it accessible because um, especially I think most of my readers will be adults, but I wanted teens to also feel like they have access points here because a lot of them are just realizing, you know, that they might be LGBTQ right. uh, and that they, a book that helps them see that they actually, that doesn't separate them from the natural world, that it might actually incorporate them within it, that there is a, a place within our natural history for bisexuality, for people transitioning genders or animals doing it. What's really interesting about this is that, uh, and listeners need to understand this, that to get this book and this information out, I mean, so many times it's been repressed or, or, or ignored. Why? Why? Wait, we should have been, we should have been talking about this. 
Yeah, well, there's there's double reasons. I mean, the one is the one that probably your listeners are already assuming, which is that, you know, there's just a history of prejudice that people right. don't want to see this as true about their animals. There, there was a sheep researcher, Valerius Geist, who in the 60s observed that male sheep basically live in a fully homosexual society until they reach sexual maturity around eight or nine, and they have frequent intercourse together. Um, but he didn't publish on it because he didn't, quote, want to see these magnificent beasts as queers. So there's that element. But actually, more broadly, the the problem is that most animals are what's called sexually monomorphic, meaning males and females appear the same. So if you look at a pigeon or a penguin, you know you don't know just by looking at it if it's male or female. And because we assume that there's only a place for male-female procreation, we assume when we see two animals mating that it's a male and a female. But with modern testing, we actually find out that, like, like in penguins, that 28% of couples in the wild are same sex, that there's actually a, a large place for it within their societies. And that's being proven true in animal after animal. You're right about that when it comes to animals. We don't know really what the sex is, when, especially when it comes to birds, because even though I have three doves in the other room who I, who I cherish, uh, I just, I put the label of, oh, you must be the mom, you must be the dad. Okay, here you are. And, and I, I'm, I'm completely wrong. I know I am. But, but, I, but isn't that weird how humans do that? We have to label everything? Oh, totally. Yeah, there's a, a really charming story. Um, Conrad Lorenz, a Nobel Prize winning ornithologist, recounted um, a friend of his who was a parrot breeder. And when he had a new parrot, he would put it in a cage with one of his existing population and just see if it was male or female based on how it had sex, whether it was in the submissive or the dominant role. Mm-hmm. And he tabulated it all for months and months. And then he realized like he had gotten it all wrong, that it was actually the submissive parrot wasn't the female, it was just whichever one was the new one to enter the cage because it observed that it was entering another parrot's territory, and so it would take this submissive sexual role. But it might have been two female parrots, it might have been two male, or it might have been a male and female. I mean, uh, And we just assumed, based on the way that they behave, which one's the boy and which one's the girl, right? So true, so true. I mean, you, we, you go to the local zoo, and, and you're going to see it right there with the chimpanzees. And, and, and to me, it's just it's a dominant thing. And so it's like, okay, I'm not understanding this. And, and I've, had, I've been that guy that's had to explain to his child that, let's talk about this, because obviously you were supposed to learn from this, so let's, let's talk about this. And that's what's great about this book, Elliot, is the fact that not only do we get to talk about it, but let's, let's go see what Elliot said about this. There's a lot more to it than we think. Yeah, and there's actually a lot of my where I was stuck was why would evolution provide this, right? Doesn't it seem like a dead end that natural selection should call just for procreation? That otherwise it, there's no purpose for that in our genetic heritage. But there's actually a ton of social reasons. So male chimpanzees will have sex together after a conflict as to resolve their their hurt feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been there's a paper that just came out a couple of years ago around fellatio and male chimpanzees for that very reason. Well, you even talk about fish. I thought that was very interesting. It's like, what? I never even thought about that. Yeah, the fish, if fish had a pride flag, it would take weeks to color in. They have so (laughs) many, like they put land animals to shame. They are extraordinary. So like wrasse fish, um, which you'll find anytime you see a coral reef or in most aquarium stores, you'll see wrasse fish, these beautiful little bright fish. Um, They live in an all-female society until uh, one of them, the dominant female, becomes male uh, and has a harem of the other females. Uh, But if he dies, then for two hours, peace reigns in this all-female group, and then one of them transitions and becomes male and becomes in charge of the other other females. So this 
sexual change is actually just part of their culture. Wow. And in other animals like frogs, if, if there's a, an accident that just wipes out all the males or the, all the females, one of them will change sex spontaneously in order to keep procreating and still have uh, tadpoles for the next generation. I love the way that you, you allow the listeners to, to step into your shoes in the way that, like, when you're having a conversation with Logan here, I mean, you, you, you definitely have dialogue in between the two of you. And, and to me, that's, that's part of the relationship with this book. Yeah, I wanted to in, include examples of researchers and queer ducks so that young people especially and also we adults like, can broaden our view of who gets to do science, right? That it's not just old guys who are white in lab, in lab coats. Uh, and so I wanted to profile these young researchers who are really changing the way that we look at the animal world uh, and that, you know, it's we think that science is this totally objective field, but science is made by scientists. And if we have one very homogenous group looking at animals, then we're going to get one homogenous view and, and miss out on the, the broad diversity of what's actually going on. I mean, even with the conversation with Max, I mean, you, you, t- you talked to him about, OK, if he were teaching this in a biology class, how would how would he teach it? Yeah, exactly. Um, And, you know, a lot of them had to shrug off the assumptions that they had gotten from their early training in science in order to 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 see what was right in front of them um, to actually broaden their view of of what animals were doing. Um, And this, you know, a lot of scientists like individually in the field would see things like sexual behavior in their animals, but then write it off. Think of this is an anomaly in my population because I haven't read about this and it, it must must be just bad science that I'm doing or, or just in this one site. And so they would not publish on the results that they were getting. And it's very telling that the, the big books around uh, same-sex sexual behavior in animals got their research by just approaching existing field sites and saying, do you have data on same-sex sexual behavior? And the answer was a resounding yes from dolphins through bonobos. If if penguins could talk, what 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 do you think their their total take is on on all of this? <laughs> well, penguins having been around penguins, they are actually incredibly noisy, so they're talking <laughs> all the time. We just don't know their language. Um, but I think you know what that was. You mentioned Logan, one of the um, researchers I talked to in, for Queer Ducks, and um, what was so interesting about Logan was you know he had transitioned, but was still like in a in an evolution around his gender identity and just look forward to being in the field, right? That just being around animals that didn't have to categorize him like, and didn't shame him for his choices around his gender identity. Right. And he could just be with his binoculars sitting in the mud. And I think that's what the beauty would be if we were able to talk to penguins is just that radical acceptance of, sure, they would care about where the next fish meal is coming from, <laughs> but they couldn't give, you know, one flipper whether you were gay, straight, or, or trans. So do you take this to a podcast? Because you know this information, each one of these pages and stuff like that. I mean, you, you could have you know, several seasons of, of, of subjects here and, and, and where people in their cars, at home, just somewhere, could hear your passion for the reasons why you want to bring this, this message forward. Oh, that's, that's very kind of you. I've always thought of myself as having a sort of a Kermit the Frog kind of voice, so I'm not sure I'm destined for podcasting, but I could leave that to you, but I'd be happy to talk to you anytime about it. <laughs> because, I mean, what you, you had to have changed. The deeper you got into research, there, there must have been things going on inside your own heart that, you know, that, that changed you. Yeah, you know, when I was a young person, I 
you know, I was a nerdy kid, which would be no surprise. And I just looked up homosexuality in the encyclopedia when I realized I was gay. And it was a really bad story, right? It's a psychological aberration that happens just to humans. And I, I was really bummed out by that because um, I loved science. And the idea that I didn't have a place in the natural world was really was sad to me. And that's kind of underpinning a lot of what our accusations we throw at um, young LGBTQ people is that this is not the way it's meant to be. It's not natural. And so being immersed in this, in these studies and seeing the species after species from insects all the way up through advanced primates, that there is a place and a benefit to same-sex sexual behavior is, was really um, freeing and comforting. And I think especially it was for me at 43 years old, and I think it will especially be for a for a 16 year old reading it. I, I'm excited to find out how, how many people will be reaching out to you, especially young adults who are still hiding, um, that, uh, uh, that they'll reach out to you and, and thank you because I mean, you, you've, you've opened a door here. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm, I'm just hoping that the, the tide of people trying to keep books out of young people's hands won't get in the way and prevent them from having expo- exposure to it. Uh, so we have, we have a, a long fight ahead of us as far as fighting against censorship. All the more reason to have that podcast, Elliot. <laughs> you can't keep that <laughs> from people. <laughs> I'm sure you have lots of advice. <laughs> Where can people go to to give you some love, man? Give you support, and and because this is not your only project, you you've been at this for a long time. Oh, you know, I I just I love local independent bookstores. So wherever you get your books, you can just look. For Elliot Schrafer, I've got a lot of YA novels and, and a couple of books for adults, too. And Queer Ducks will be uh, right there wherever you wherever you like to get your books normally. All right, dude. you got to come back to this show anytime in the future. The door is always going to be open for you. Thank you. And thanks for your excitement and for doing such a thorough read of the book. I'm really grateful to, grateful to talk to you. Excellent, dude. Be brilliant today, okay? Thanks. You, too.